0: Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org.
1: Before Brad comes up and delivers the word this morning, I'm going to open us up in a time of prayer, so please pray with me. God, thank you for who you are. We see right at the beginning of the Bible the power of your words. You see, let there be light, and it comes. And this is a great reason why in which we can trust every single promise you've given to your people. Not only have we seen them fulfilled time and time again, but there is power in your word. There is nothing that will break the promises that you give your people. And thank you for the great hope you've given us in Christ. Every day we wake up to a world in all kinds of disaster and pain. While there's beauty in this world, there's also a lot of darkness that we see in our own lives and in the world around us. And we thank you for for giving for sending Christ to come to this earth to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom that one day you will reunite heaven and earth, reconciling all things together and wiping away every tear that we've shed. At the, at the final hope that we look forward to in glory with you, we will see every promise fulfilled and every hurt and pain we will praise you for eternally. We thank you for the great hope you've given us. As we come together uh, today and bread preaches, I pray that you would be with him, help him to deliver your word, and I just pray that you would grow us in hopeful expectation of the promises you've given us, God. We love you, and we give you this day. Amen.
0: Well, good morning. Again, you just saw me. Uh, my name is Brad, uh, like I said. I'm newer on staff here. Uh, in September, uh, GCC hired me to serve as the executive pastor, and so i um, my wife, Jenna, and our little baby, Riggs, he's nine months old. Uh, they're at home today. He's not feeling super well. Um, uh, but I would just want to say on behalf of us, the Leiboldt family, thank you to you, uh, our new GCC family. Uh, if any of you have ever transferred from one church family to another, uh, you know how difficult and maybe sometimes awkward it can be to go from one group of people that you've known and loved to another group of people that you maybe don't know uh, so well. And Jenna and I have just felt so welcomed uh, so cared for, so loved, and we're super appreciative of you, GCC, um, our new church family, for the way that you've, you've welcomed us in. Uh, if you're new and uh, this is maybe your first or second time at GCC, uh, then I can speak from recent personal experience how welcoming of a church this is, and I hope you feel that. I hope that is your experience, and I hope you'll stick around uh, to, to be with us. I know we have felt that, and, and we're super thankful. Uh, as has been said, this is the first week of our Advent series, and so uh, we're going to we're, we're starting a a series uh, called uh, the Ultimate Gift Giver. And as we uh, look at this time of of Christmas, where we give gifts and receive gifts, ultimately we're pointing our eyes to God, who is the ultimate gift giver. And each week for the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to look at a different gift that God has has given. And and this morning we're going to be looking at the gift of promise. The gift of promise. And kind of attached to that is the gift of hope. Uh, So that's what we're going to be looking at today. But first, I have a question, kind of two questions. Uh, Have you ever been lied to? Probably yes. Have you ever been lied to? And then what were the consequences of that lie? Uh, A few years ago, I went on a hunting trip with a couple friends. Ian Wheeler is one of them and then another buddy. And we were going to an area that none of us had ever been before. And so we were relying on a GPS-like mapping system that I had on my phone. And we were trying to find a place to camp. And it was getting dark. And we picked a spot on the map. But we didn't know how to get there. We'd never been there before. And we found a road that was supposed to take us to uh, this spot. The map said the road existed. The map said it was all good to go. And so we started down this road. And it wasn't long before the brush on either side of the road started uh, closing in on us and getting closer and closer. But man, this map told us that we were heading in the right direction, and so we kept going. And then the first like kinda like scratch on the side of my truck happened. It was like, ah, like this is getting a little sketchy, uh, but we're gonna keep going. Uh, the, the, The map is guiding our path, we're gonna keep doing this. And then the like one branch turns into like three, five, seven, and all of a sudden, like just all over my truck are just branches of brush, just scraping the exterior of the paint, I'm dying on the inside, just cringing. Like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Um, but we look at the map. We're over halfway. We just got to send it. We got to get through uh, because we need to get there and set up camp. And so we keep going. And it's just, it's like so bad, guys. Like, like, like nails on a chalkboard. We're all just cringing on the inside. Like, oh, I hope this works out. It didn't. Uh, we got about 100 yards from like where this road was supposed to end and pop out onto another road. And we just ran into a wall of brush. <laughs> and there was no going through it, over it, around it. Uh, dead-end. The only hope, or our only option was to turn around and come back the way we came, which just scratched my truck double. So we wasted a bunch of time, ruined the exterior of of my truck, all kinds of scratches and paint. It was getting dark, late, cold. We had no place to camp. It was a disaster. Turned out to be a good trip. We had a lot of fun, um, but it did not start out great. Now every time I use that same map system, uh, and, I, and it turns me on a road that I've never been on before, I'm a little skeptical. <laughs> I've been lied to once, and now I don't like fully trust uh, this mapping system to actually get me where I need to go. I'm skeptical that it's actually going to steer me in the right direction. I was lied to once, and that's all it took for me to lose trust. And so I ask the question, have you ever been lied to? The obvious answer is yes. Maybe it's not by a mapping system, but people, people have probably lied to you. Um, And it doesn't take many lies for us to start to lose trust in the people uh, that tell us those lies. And then our loss of trust expands beyond just those individual people, and we start to be skeptical of everyone. And this isn't just an individual phenomenon, it's a cultural one. We have phrases in our culture like build trust, earn trust. I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw them. It's just like uh, there's this underlying understanding that trust is hard to come by. It's difficult to build. It's difficult to earn. And we all just kind of don't really trust everyone um, all that much. Uh, Poets throughout time have, uh, and, and artists and authors have picked up on this. William Shakespeare said, love all, trust a few, do wrong to none. And so his big advice was to love everyone and to not do wrong to anyone, but only trust a few people because not everyone is to be trusted. A more recent poet, uh, the great Lady Gaga, said, trust is like a mirror. You can fix it if it's broken, but you can still see the crack in its reflection. So no matter how well you put back together trust that has been broken, you can always kind of see, still see that crack. It's never fully repaired. A uh, Few statistics, 60% of Americans don't trust mass media outlets to report the news fairly, accurately, and fully. 64% of people say it's hard to tell what is true when listening to elected officials. 48% of people say it's hard to tell what is true when using social media. And 30% of people say it's hard to tell what is true when talking with people you know. If you think about that, 30% of people, when they're talking to their friend, they're like, I don't think they're telling the truth. Uh, we have trust issues. And it's not just a, kind of an out there issue. We, this, this seeps into the church as well. First Corinthians 13, the, the chapter on love, verse seven says, love believes all things. Another way we could translate or understand that is that love always trusts. In other words, the default position that Christians should take towards one another, towards people they love, is trust. Yet oftentimes our default position is skepticism. Right now, there's probably some of you out there that are skeptical of the guy up here talking to you. We'd have trust issues. And now we we come to a bit of a dilemma. If our culture and our lives are so saturated with trust issues, what happens when we're asked to trust God? Uh, Our trust issues often extend into our relationship with Him. Whether it's difficult circumstances in our life, uh, ongoing and persistent sin, whether we've been mistreated by the church or by Christians, we can oftentimes take a stance of skepticism towards God and wonder if He can really be trusted. So like I said, this is the first week of Advent, the first sermon in the series, The Ultimate Gift Giver, and we're looking at the gift of promise. And my hope is that as we look at this gift of promise, what God has promised, how he has kept his promise, uh, that our trust in him would grow, and that we will have hope as we enter the Christmas season considering all of God's promises and believing that he will be faithful to fulfill them. So if you have your Bible, turn uh, to Genesis chapter 3. So where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Genesis chapter three. Uh, while you're turning there, I'm just going to say a quick prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you uh, for the people in this room. God, we trust that you uh, have not, that, that no one is here on accident, uh, that you've brought every single person into this room for a purpose. Um, and so we, we submit this time to you. God, help me, help me to speak. Uh, clearly, but God, help me ultimately to point people to you. And I pray that we all this morning would leave with a greater sense of trust and hope uh, in Christ because of what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis 3, real quick context, we're jumping onto page 3 of the Bible, what happens on pages 1 and 2. Genesis 1, God creates everything. He creates the heavens and the earth. He brings order out of chaos. He makes an uninhabitable place habitable and sustainable for life. Uh, And then he creates that life, plants and trees and uh, animals. And ultimately, the pinnacle of God's creation is humanity, Adam and Eve, male and female. And they're created to bear God's image. In other words, they're created to represent and reflect God as they rule over God's creation. Humanity was to rule underneath the ultimate authority of God over all of God's creation, spreading his presence, his blessing, his benefit to the world. Genesis 2 gives us kind of a more in-depth look into the creation of Adam and Eve. And we learn that the way they're going to rule, the way they're going to spread God's image is by multiplying, having children, creating more image bearers, and then by working the ground, by gardening, by cultivating, by taking the, the raw potential of the earth and bringing about blessing and benefit to the world. We learn also in Genesis 2 that there's one rule or stipulation, a condition, a boundary that God sets up. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, they're to remember that there is a creator and there's creation, and they fall they fall into the latter category. God is the one who defines what is good and evil, and they are to submit to it. God is the ultimate authority over all he has made, which makes sense. He made it, and they are to submit to that ultimate authority. And then we get to Genesis 3, and an enemy arrives on the scene, Satan in the form of a serpent approaches Adam and Eve and plants a seed of doubt, a seed of mistrust, a question of, can you really believe what God has said? And so Genesis three, looking at uh, verse, the second half of verse one, and then through verse six, this is the serpent speaking. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree. So Satan challenges the trustworthiness of God. Uh, He he starts poking holes in God's word and Adam and Eve stop believing that God knows what's best for them. They start thinking that God has ulterior motives. And so they take the fruit, grasping at autonomy, grasping at autonomy from God, uh, and they decide that they're going to know what's best. And when it comes to defining good and evil, what is good for them, what is good for the world and what is bad for them and the world is going to be up to them now and not God. Creation attempts to take place of the creator. And this this rebellion is what the Bible calls sin. And it's the same rebellion that happens today in our lives and in our world. We don't believe that God is real or authoritative or good, and so we do what we think is best for us. We define good and evil on our own terms, and the result is brokenness. The consequences of this rebellion of sin are detrimental to humanity. And I want to just look at three briefly in this Genesis three passage. three consequences of sin, shame, pain, and death. Uh, in verse seven, we see shame. Adam and Eve's eyes were opened. They knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. What God had created good and beautiful and, 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 and perfect They all of a sudden start seeing as bad and ugly and shameful. They start seeing themselves differently. This is instant after sin, shame starts to creep in. And they no longer like what they see when they look in the mirror. They see shame. They see ugliness. And so the result is hiding. They hid. They hid from one another. They hid from God, ultimately because they didn't like what they saw in the mirror. Second consequence is pain. In verse 16, uh, this is after God comes to them and he's speaking to the serpent, Eve and Adam. He says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desires shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, oftentimes we stop at the like pain of childbirth when we think about this verse, which I think is a part of it, but I think it's bigger than that. I think it'd be more uh, accurate to read this as child rearing, (laughs) that from conception to adulthood, raising children is going to be difficult. You remember what the creation mandate for the, for Adam and Eve was in Genesis two, it's to be fruitful and multiply. They were created to multiply and spread, spread God's image over all the world. And now that's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. There's going to be relational friction between Adam and Eve, between man and wife. There is going to be pain in bringing up children in this world. And then to Adam, verse 17, he says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat, it all, eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember, part of the creation mandate was to be fruitful and multiply. The other part of it was to work, to cultivate, to garden, to bring uh, things out of the raw potential of the earth. And now that's going to be difficult. Any kind of production that happens is going to come through blood, sweat, and tears because of sin. In other words, just to sum all that up, life is hard. <laughs> and life is going to be difficult now because of sin. There's going to be pain. There's going to be brokenness uh, because of rebellion in the garden. And then lastly, death. We read it in that that verse there, from dust you have come and to dust you will return. Uh, So ultimately, Adam and Eve are going to die. Humans die. And that is a result of sin. Physically, yes, but more significantly, spiritually. In verse 24 of chapter three, it says, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Ultimately, Adam and Eve are cut off from the source of life, God himself. They're, they're separated from their creator, from the God who made them and loves them because of sin. And So this is the story of humanity, created for purpose and life with their creator, but because of their sin and rebellion, doomed for a life of shame, pain, and ultimately death. Separated eternally from the source of life, the God who made them and loves them. But he's a God who loves them. And their sin doesn't change that love for them. In fact, in, in the midst of their shame, pain, and death, in the midst of their rebellion, he steps towards them. He moves towards them. He, he moves through the brokenness, calls out to them, and he makes a promise. In Genesis three fourteen, this is the first part of this promise. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Uh, This verse is usually interpreted that the serpent had legs like some kind of lizard, and then he didn't have legs, uh, which is maybe true. Uh, But I think it's getting more at the metaphor of crawling on your belly and eating dust as a metaphor for defeat, and in later in scripture, in Micah 7, 17 and Psalm 72, 9, just as a couple examples, there's enemy like armies that this is used to symbolize their defeat. They're crawling on their belly. They're licking the dust. It, basically what, what God is saying to the serpent is that all the days of your life, you're a dead man walking. You're, you're, it's over. You're going to lose. You're not, this is not a winning fight for you. From the moment the battle begins, the war is over. It's done. He's going to lose. And how is he going to lose? Verse 15, here's the promise. The first promise so far where God says he is going to do something in the future. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. One day someone will come. An offspring of the woman, meaning a human. A human is going to come. And defeat the offspring of the serpent, which does not mean baby snakes, um, that we could do without those probably. Um, No, the offspring of the serpent is the multiplication of evil and brokenness in our world. It's the effects of what the serpent did with Adam and Eve, just multiplying and expanding over the rest of the world. In other words, someone is going to come, a human is going to come, a hero is going to come. And eliminate, do away with, destroy evil at its source. But from the very source of evil, the very source of brokenness is going to be defeated by a hero. But notice when the hero delivers a, the crushing blow, the snake bites back. The hero who's going to come and do away with evil at its source is going to uh, be affected by the evil. And it's going to, going to be crushed as well. Scholars refer to this verse as the proto-euangelion, which is just proto-first. Euangelion is the Greek word for good news or gospel. It's the first gospel. It's the first mention of the gospel. And notice when it comes, page three, like verses after everything like goes wrong. Verses after humanity makes a mess of God's good world, he promises to do something about it. He promises to send someone. It's going to cost them their life, but he's going to fix everything that humanity had broken. So in the midst of their shame, in the midst of their pain, in the midst of the, uh, the death that is coming to them, in the midst of them not trusting God, not believing him, in the midst of the, the reality of the consequences of sin coming, crushing down on them, God's commitment never wavers. His love never shifts. And right away, he makes a promise. A promise that humans would not have to fix the mess they made. I promise that humans would not have to defeat the enemy on their own. I promise that they wouldn't have to work out on their own how to reverse the effects of the fall and get back into the presence of God. I promise that he, God, would provide a way back to eternal life. They wouldn't have to try to find one on their own. Now, I keep saying they and them, Adam and Eve, humanity, but we're all in the same boat. We've all rebelled. We've all sinned. We all think we know better than the God who made us. And because of our sin as individuals and our sin collectively as humanity, our world is broken. And we feel that. We feel the brokenness of our world when we uh, open our phone and read what's going on. We see it when we drive down the street. We see it in our workplace. We see it in our own homes and our own hearts. The world is broken. There's many in here today who are battling with shame. We don't like who we are. We don't like who we see in the mirror, and so we attempt to cover it up, not with fig leaves, but with different identities, different masks that we run to to try to keep people at an arm's length, because if they really actually knew the real me, they wouldn't like what they see. And so, so we run around pretending to be people we're not because of shame. There's many here today who are struggling with pain, just, just the pain of life. The difficulty of broken relationships, of sickness, of loss, uh, the, the pain of raising children. Uh, many of you have recently had babies and you know what that's about. Some of you maybe have children who are not following Jesus, who have walked away from the faith, who have, who have wandered. You have difficult relationships with them. You're here today and you're experiencing the pain that comes because of sin. The pain of broken relationships. And Ronnie spoke last week about uh, uh, our pursuit of pleasure. We try to remedy our pain with pleasures and quick fixes and self-help, but ultimately those things are only killing us more. And then death. There are those here today who have experienced death. The death of a loved one, of a family member, a friend. Maybe it's, it's uh, death that is looming, sickness, uh, poor health. And so we do different things to try to avoid death. We try to escape, numb ourselves to feeling it, uh, or we just live in ignorance about the frailty of life and pretend like it won't come for us as well. And we experience these things, shame, pain, and death of sin all year round. But it seems like something happens at Christmas uh, when the, the lights and the magic and the celebration and the wonder uh, and, and the joy of Christmas, it almost amplifies the, the shadow that is caused by sin. Uh, maybe this will be the first Christmas without someone who's always been there for you at Christmas. Uh, maybe this Christmas, you're not going to be able to get the gifts that you would like to get because of a difficult year financially. It seems like for a variety of reasons... Christmas just brings out the worst, but then there's also something to run to and hide in, and so we never deal with the worst. Christmas can make us feel hopeless, even though the season is all about hope. And there is hope. And it's the same hope that Adam and Eve had in the midst of their shame, pain, and death. Um, And it's the same promise, with one slight difference. The promise to Adam and Eve was that someone would come. And the promise to you and me is that someone has come. And it's the coming of this person, Advent, Jesus Christ, the snake crusher, the hero, that is what we celebrate this time of year. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise to eradicate sin and evil at the source and reconcile people back to him. Uh, In Matthew chapter one, you don't have to turn there. It'll be on the the board we have or on the slide slide. Uh, one of the accounts, the gospel accounts of Jesus's birth. And when Mary uh, gets miraculously pregnant and Joseph is trying to figure out what to do, an angel comes to him. And this is Matthew 1, 20 and 21. It says, but as he considered these things, as Joseph. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. So the woman is going to have a child, and he is to be named Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua, same as Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. God saves. Jesus' very name is the fulfillment of the promise that God is saving his people through this man. God chose to enter into his creation and the mess that humanity had made of his creation by becoming a human and not an independent, capable adult, but a helpless, independent baby. Um, I I said earlier that Jenna and Riggs are home. Riggs was not feeling well this last week. He's nine months old. This is the first time he's really been sick. And it's like so just heartbreaking to have a sick baby. Many of you know what this is like. So helpless Uh, so dependent upon caregivers, mom and dad, to take care of him, to change his diaper, to wipe his snotty nose, to, to help him fall asleep. He's completely and utterly dependent on others. That's how Jesus came to us. The God of the universe became a baby, a dependent, hopeless child that needed caregiving. That's how low God made himself to enter into our world and our situation. And baby Jesus would grow up to save his people from their sins. How? How does Jesus save people from their sins? By living, dying, and rising. Living. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I never could. He lived in complete and total submission to the authority of the Father. He never tried to define good and evil on his own outside of the authority of God. He lived perfectly and righteously the life that humans are supposed to live. And though there was no sin in him, though there was no fault or mistake, Jesus was put to death. He died. And on the cross, he didn't just die a physical death, but he experienced the wrath of God because of the sin of people. Our sin, our shame, our mistakes, our failures were all placed on Christ when he died on the cross. And he took the penalty for those in our place. He was buried in a tomb and three days later, he rose from the grave. And in rising, Jesus conquers sin and death and offers that same victory to all who would come to him. And when we do come to him, when we come to Jesus and place our faith in him, our sins are forgiven. Our sins, past, present, future. The sins you committed this morning on your way to church last night, that you're going to commit next week, they're all covered. By the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for you. It's the great exchange. Where Jesus gets our sin on the cross and we get his righteousness for the rest of our life and into eternity. And now hidden in Christ, we have new life here in the present. And we look forward to new life in the future with God for eternity. God made good on his promise. The snake crusher came. Jesus won, but it cost him his life. And in giving up his life, we're given new life. Now, if God has proven himself trustworthy, and he has, he, he made good on his promise, then we can believe him when he makes, makes other promises. And he makes all kinds of good promises to those who are in Christ. Uh, Romans 8 is an awesome chapter in our Bible, and I would encourage you to go read it. We're not going to read the whole thing, but it's full of these wonderful promises that God has for those who are in Christ. And just like speed around, we're going to breeze through it and highlight some of these promises Uh, as an encouragement to us this morning. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you stand before God, the ultimate and final judge, if you are in Christ, you will not be condemned. You will be declared righteous. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If you're in Christ, You're a beloved child of God, a son or a daughter, and you have a royal inheritance waiting for you that you didn't earn and can never lose. Romans 8, 26, likewise, the spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We've been saved from the power of sin. It no longer has a hold on us if we're in Christ We've been saved from the penalty of sin. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, but we still experience the presence of sin daily. And as we experience the presence of sin, we have help. The spirit of God is interceding on behalf of us. Romans eight twenty eight. and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That good might not be the way you draw it up, but ultimately God is working all things together for your good. And lastly, Romans 8, 38, and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're in Christ, you will never be out of Christ. There is absolutely nothing, no amount of sin or hard circumstances, not even death itself will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, and I'm going to pull a Rick joke In the words of the great theologian, Rick Astley. Uh, God is never going to give you up. He's never going to let you down. He's never going to run around and desert you. He's never going to make you cry. He might, I don't necessarily agree with that one, but tears are good. He's never going to say goodbye. He's never going to tell a lie and hurt you. Um, you're welcome to have that stuck in your head the rest of the day. Um, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God find their yes in him, him being Christ. Meaning that when we think about the promises of God, they're always yes because of Christ. All the, old tes- all the promises in the Old Testament point forward to Christ. The promises in the New Testament point back to Christ. And when we consider and think about the promises that God has made us, we can be sure that they will be yes because of Christ. We always look to Jesus to remind ourselves of God's promises and his promise keeping. And so this Christmas season, as the darkness of shame, pain, and death increase around you, look to Jesus, look to Christ, see God's faithfulness, see his trustworthiness, and let the gospel of Jesus Christ renew your hope and the promises of God. Um, As as a final kind of consideration, I want to close with this, um, maybe even a challenge if we can say that, as you go throughout this week. Um, any Lord of the Rings fans? Oh, no, OK. I'm not even going to talk about the movies. I'm going to talk about the book, which is like, the hands would be less. OK, in Return of the King, the last installment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's a scene in the book that doesn't make it in the movie. And I'll do it really quick, because none of you are going to care. The, the, it's at the end of the book, and the war is won. The ring has been destroyed. By the way, if this is a spoiler, that's on you. All right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, The the ring has been destroyed. Uh, The king has been crowned. The war is over. Evil is is gone. Good has prevailed. But Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin head back to the Shire, where they're from, and they find that Saruman, the former wizard and number two bad guy, uh, has taken over the Shire. And there's like this battle going on outside of like where the war was happening uh, after the war has already been won. And so they, they lead this rebellion, they defeat Saruman and all is good and happy and well. The point is that the war had been won, evil had been defeated, and yet there is still a battle raging off from the side. And that's the, the situation we find ourselves in as the church, as Christians. The war is won. The evil is destroyed. Satan has been defeated. Sin has been conquered. Death has been conquered. Jesus is victorious. Not Jesus is going to be victorious. Jesus is victorious. Yet we still experience the presence of sin in our life. And so what is the the strategy? What is the battle for defeating and fighting against this sin? Well, the, the troops that Jesus recruits is the church. And Romans 16, 20, this is the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. He says this in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Okay, now that you know about Genesis 3.15, Romans 16.20, it's kind of mind-blowing. Jesus came and crushed the serpent, and now soon, the God of peace is going to finish crushing the serpent under your feet, the church. Jesus ascended into heaven. He sent his spirit to indwell people who follow him, and now we have that power to crush Satan. How? By proclaiming the gospel. By pointing people to the snake crusher, by pointing people to Jesus, by proclaiming the good news of Christ. And so this Christmas season, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. As you fight off the shame and pain and death and darkness of sin with the hope and the the promises of God in Christ, people are going to notice. And so point them to the source of your hope. Which is not your circumstances, it's not your good deeds or works, it's not your family or friends, as good as they might be. It's Christ and Christ alone. So trust in God's good promises. He's proved himself trustworthy. Be trustworthy people, and then tell other people about a trustworthy God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, making good on your promise to send someone a hero to save us from the mess that we made. We do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve your mercy. We do not deserve your forgiveness, but God, you offer it freely to us. All we have to do is come to you. God, if there's anyone in the room this morning who has not yet done that, um, who is trying to fix the brokenness in their life on their own, and I pray that this morning you would break into their heart and that they would submit their lives to you. Uh, God, for those of us in Christ, we thank you for the promises you have made. We thank you that those promises are always yes uh, because of Jesus. Help us to have hope this Christmas season. Help us to uh, share about that hope. Help us to uh, be people of joy because we can trust you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.